Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 39th episode of this podcast, recorded on Thursday, February 15th. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, Nextfirm. Nextfirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how Nextfirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow Nextfirm on LinkedIn for a preview. One of the biggest legal wins of 2024 to date was the $83.3 million verdict in favor of writer E. Jean Carroll in her defamation lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. Back in 2022, I interviewed one of the lawyers behind that win, Robbie Kaplan of Kaplan, Hecker & Fink, or KHF. Today, I'm bringing you a different perspective on the case. My latest guest is Sean Crowley, who, along with Robbie Kaplan, led the KHF team that prevailed in Carroll v. Trump. Sean is a partner at Kaplan, Hecker & Fink, where she represents individuals and corporations in sensitive and high-profile trials, investigations, complex litigation, and internal and government-led investigations. Before joining KHF, Sean served for more than six years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, where she worked on a number of high-profile cases, some of which we discuss on the podcast. Sean is one of the leading trial lawyers of her generation, or any generation, really, but I do think the fact that she only just turned 40 is noteworthy. I'm delighted to be interviewing her now because I predict you'll be hearing a lot more about Sean in the years ahead. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sean Crowley. Sean, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's begin at the beginning, as I usually do. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a very, very tiny town called East Wallingford, Vermont, on the top of a dirt road at the end of a very long dirt driveway. Was it a farm or just a rural area? It used to be a farm. My parents were not farmers, but it used to be an old dairy farm. And so we had a barn and some horses and chickens and many dogs and cats. But it wasn't like a working farm when I was growing up. And do you ski at all? I do ski or I used to ski. I grew up skiing. I think everybody in Vermont has to ski at some point. (laughs) I skied competitively for a little while and went to a high school for skiing, like a ski academy where we would do school in the morning and then ski in the afternoon and then every weekend go somewhere to compete. Oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. (laughs) Did you continue skiing in college? I didn't. I thought about it, but decided that I had spent almost every weekend as a teenager getting up at six o'clock in the morning and trudging out into the freezing cold of Vermont or Maine or New Hampshire or Colorado or wherever. And I thought that maybe I wanted to just sort of have a more regular existence in college. And so I went to Northwestern in Chicago. So I didn't pick like a warm or particularly inviting (laughs) (laughs) environment, but I decided to give skiing a break. Fair enough. And what did you study when you were at Northwestern? Were you already drifting in the law area? Did you do poli-sci? I did poli-sci. I don't know that I can say that I was drifting in the law area. I went to college thinking that I was going to be a doctor, 
I don't know why, really. I think my dad's in the medical field and I just thought like, that seems like a good career. And then I took chemistry and literally after the midterm exam, I walked to my guidance counselor's office and was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not going <laughs> to take chemistry and I'm not going to be a doctor. So I need to figure out what I want to do. And I didn't really figure out that I wanted to try the law thing until a couple of years after college. It was always sort of floating in the back of my mind. People had told me that I was like an argumentative person in some ways, in particular my parents. And so I thought maybe someday I'll give that a try. But I was certainly not like one of those people who like knew from age 12 that they were destined to be in the courtroom. <laughs> yes, like your partner, Robbie Kaplan, whom I interviewed. Exactly. And she said from a young age, she knew she wanted to go into law. So what then after college started to nudge you in the law direction? It was actually like one very interesting experience that I had. So after college, I was basically like a ski bum. I was coaching skiing. I was living back in Vermont and I was doing other jobs. And I went on vacation. I don't know if I should be admitting to this, but I went on vacation to Alaska. And while I was there, I met a group of lawyers who worked in the AG's office in Alaska and they did environmental law. And they were talking about their jobs and they were also talking about their lives. And I was like, this is amazing. These people seem to be like pretty fired up about what they're doing, but they also on weekends and at night go on these like crazy Alaskan adventures and go camping and biking and hiking. And I kind of want that life. So I thought I could probably do this. And so I decided that I was going to go to law school and I thought that I wanted to maybe be an environmental lawyer. Oh, okay. I don't see anything negative about any of your... They don't seem well, like just that it wasn't super interest. premeditated. It was just, okay. it was like, okay, I went on vacation and met some cool people and that sort of decided the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I feel that with my interviewees, there are two extremes. There are either people like Robbie who knew from age two they wanted to be lawyers and then people who just kind of stumbled into it. And my interviewees are generally successful people. So there are many paths to success. So you went to Columbia Law School and did you like law school? I did. I liked law school a lot. I had some great professors. I met some of my best friends who are still my best friends. And I got to work on some really interesting projects that I think have sort of guided me to where I later went in the law. I worked for Professor James Liebman, who's a pretty well-known death penalty scholar, and spent a lot of time looking for and unfortunately finding instances in which people had been put to death who were later revealed to have not been guilty of the crime that they'd been charged with. And so I got to be part of a project that he did uncovering one such instance and ultimately writing a book about it, which was published after I went to law school. But that's what sort of got me started thinking about criminal law. And then after law school, you went to clerk in the Southern District for Judge Kaplan, to whom we will return later. But what was your clerkship experience like? It was wonderful. I just happened to be clerking for Judge Kaplan during a year when he had a lot of very exciting and headline-capturing cases, including the first, or actually, I guess it was the second installment of the Chevron v. Donziger matter. He had the bench trial at the time that I was clerking, and also a number of national security cases in which the U.S. Attorney's Office in SDNY had charged people in connection with terrorist attacks overseas. So it was a wonderful experience. I learned so much. And it was ultimately what convinced me that I wanted to give it a shot to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office. 
Interesting. Okay, because your prior exposure through your work with Professor Liebman was more on the defense side, but it sounds like your clerkship didn't turn you off from the prosecution side, and if anything, made you interested in it. It did. I also got to see sort of the quality of lawyering from the assistants in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I thought that they were very good and also very comfortable in court and seemed to really enjoy the work that they were doing. And so being able to see that firsthand It just made me think like this is something that I would love to have the opportunity to do. And then you did realize that goal. You went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District. Did you start off in general crimes as most people do? I did. I did a year, a little less in general crimes. And then I went to the narcotics unit. That's the standard trajectory for everyone. You do a year in general crimes, which is like just sort of smaller versions of the bigger crimes that everyone goes on to prosecute and then a year in the general narcotics unit. And then I think because of my experience and my clerkship, I went to the terrorism and international narcotics unit. And that's where I stayed for a couple of years before becoming chief of the narcotics unit. And then my last job before I left was as one of the co-chiefs of the terrorism unit. So during your time in the U.S. Attorney's Office, you worked on a number of high-profile and really interesting cases. We don't have time to get into all of them, but if you could pick out one or two, are there any cases from your time in the SDNY that you're particularly proud of or that were particularly interesting or challenging? For sure. So one really cool thing about being a supervisor is that you get to not only experience the cases that you yourself are working on, but also what the people who are in your unit are doing. And I couldn't even begin to sort of list or identify the most sort of impactful ones that I got to be a small part of. I think there are two that sort of stand out that I worked on myself. One is the Chelsea Bomber case, which was in 2016, a man named Ahmed Khan Rahimi set off bombs first in New Jersey and then in Chelsea in Manhattan. Luckily, no one was killed, but he did a ton of damage and many people were injured. And It was an extremely sort of exhilarating and scary time to come on and work on that case because for a while, for a few days, he was at large. We didn't know where he was. And it was like an all hands on deck situation at the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which used to be in Chelsea. Everyone, hundreds of people were from all different components of law enforcement were sort of gathered together to try to find him and use like all of the tools in law enforcement toolbox to find him. And we did. And he faced charges. And about a year later, I went to trial, which was a trial that I got to do. So I think that was one of the bigger and certainly more memorable cases that I worked on. There was another case that I actually started that has like stuck with me the most, I think, that I started when I was in general crimes. And one type of case that that assistants in general crimes work on, which is probably one of the least pleasant types of crimes is child pornography and child endangerment cases. And I was assigned to work on one where we were investigating the former debate coach at Bronx Science High School when he was the debate coach. And I won't get into too much detail, but basically he was soliciting pornographic images from kids, not his students, but kids who he was meeting online. And So we started the investigation, ultimately concluded that there was sufficient proof to charge and convict him. He was arrested. And then there was a very intense period of sort of plea negotiations with his lawyer. There was not really much discussion about him going to trial because the proof was pretty strong, including 
confession when he was arrested. And he had a great lawyer, Steve Zissou is his name. And it was a really just like formative experience for me as a prosecutor because this man had done really like hurtful and terrible things to certain kids. But he also was this completely just beloved member of the Bronx science community who had done so much for the school and for his students. And at every court appearance, including his sentencing, there would be like dozens of students and parents of students who came to watch and support him and wrote letters of support to him. And it was just, it was such a lesson to me as a young prosecutor in like the crime does not define the man. He is more than what he's done. But at the same time, he's done something really bad and there needs to be justice for that. And so, I mean, I still think about that case. And, and in fact, so he, he ended up pleading guilty and he went to prison and his lawyer periodically updates me on how he's doing. He's out of prison now. When he went to jail, he has said that like it actually in some ways, the whole experience was was a valuable one for him because he could finally sort of start talking about and admitting to things that previously were like hidden and he was secretive and lying about. But he went to prison and he like started a library and started teaching fellow inmates how to defend themselves in their cases. And now he's out and he's working, I think, in his lawyer's office. And his lawyer texted me after the Trump trial just a couple of weeks ago and said, John was watching you on TV and said, that's my prosecutor. So (laughs) it was just a crazy experience in many ways. I think it was important for me as a prosecutor. It's sometimes hard not to lose sight of the fact that everyone who is involved in the cases that we're working on, including the defendants, are people Mm -hmm. and they have many aspects to them. And just keeping that in mind and recognizing that as you're working on these cases, I think is really important. Yeah, that's so important because a lot of times you might just see the case caption and the defendant to some people might just be some kind of number and then they go to prison and they get their inmate locator number and they're just shuffling through the system. But you're right, they're human beings behind all of these cases. And I'm guessing that lesson or the lessons you learned from that case are helpful to you now because now you're doing a significant amount of white collar criminal defense in your current practice at Kaplan, Hecker and Fink, right? I am. Yeah. I think putting aside the Trump matters, it's probably most of what I'm doing now. And it's certainly been helpful. And even, I mean, I've learned so much in the three and a half years that I've been here and been working as a defense lawyer and just being reminded of like the fact that anytime someone is involved in the criminal justice system, whether it's because they're a witness or a victim or being investigated or charged with a crime, it's like life altering for them. And that's something that you're not confronted with as much when you're a prosecutor. You're just not, you're not interacting with people every day, certainly people who've been charged with crimes. But I think it's like a really important thing to remember and to know. What led you when you were leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office to join KHF instead of going back to a large firm like the one you had been at before? So the people, I think, and the, I mean, seems obvious, but the kinds of work that the people were doing, I had known So when people leave the U.S. Attorney's Office, they always say, like, this was the best job of my life. I'm never going to have an experience like this again. And sometimes they're sort of sad and a little bit depressed when they go. And I loved my experience there. And some of my best friends are from there. But I wanted to be excited about the next thing that I did. And I happened to have two friends from the U.S. Attorney's Office who went to Kaplan Hecker 
before me. And they were like the only people or some of the only people I know who had gone to law firms and were just as excited about the work that they were doing in their post-U.S. attorney's office life as they were when they were in the office. That makes perfect sense. I am just fascinated by what the firm does in terms of balancing large, complex commercial cases like the ones that Robbie used to try at Paul Weiss, but also these cases that are in the headlines, public interest cases, just really major consequential cases, which I think a lot of large law firms today might be almost scared to take on, which kind of leads us to what I wanted to focus on today with you. Uh, Congratulations on the victory, or I guess victories, plural, in Eugene Carroll's sexual assault and defamation trials against Donald Trump. Now, there was the $5 million verdict last May, then the $83.3 million verdict last month. And I believe I heard on Chris Hayes that last month's verdict fell on your birthday? Yeah, it was my 40th birthday. Oh, wow. That's a milestone. And how did you celebrate both your birthday and the verdict? It was a whirlwind night. I went out to dinner with my husband and some friends, and then we went out dancing, which it felt like, I'm so old now, can I really do this? But like, we stayed out late and had a good time. And periodically, I would just sort of think like, wow, this is really crazy. Remember what happened a couple hours ago? Now, it's interesting. I'm familiar with the differences between the two E. Jean Carroll cases, or at least I think I am, because it can be kind of hard to keep track of Trump's misdeeds. But Could you explain just briefly the differences between the cases? And I think one thing that sometimes confuses people is the case that's referred to as Carol 1 is actually the case that was resolved later? Yes. So I will do my best to be brief and hopefully helpful because it's very confusing. (laughs) So the quick background is that this all started in 1996 when Trump sexually assaulted Eugene in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman. In June of 2019, so like 25 years later, She wrote a book in which, among many other stories, she told for the first time the story of the assault. And New York Magazine did like a piece right before the book was released that was published online and in the magazine. And right after her story, Trump came forward and spoke to reporters and over the course of three days said a series of things in which he denied assaulting Eugene, but also denied knowing her and went on to like pretty viciously defame her. He accused her of making up the story to sell a book as part of a political agenda. He said he didn't know her, had never met her, which is obviously a lie. And he said that she wasn't his type, which is one of his common refrains when women have accused him of something, essentially saying like, have you seen them? They're too ugly. I would never rape that person. And so several months after that, Eugene and Robbie, I wasn't at the firm at the time, and the team here, filed what's referred to as Carol One, which was a defamation case based on the statements that Trump made in June of 2019, right after Eugene came forward. That case has been pending or was pending for like four years and has taken many trips up to the Second Circuit, over to D.C., because Trump's team tried basically every trick up their sleeve to delay it, to get him out of it, to just prevent it from happening. And essentially, one of his main arguments that he made was that I was president at the time that I made these statements. And so I can't be held liable for anything that I did as president. You know, he's making that argument in other forums right now. 
He also said, I should be immune from those sorts of things, which required the Second Circuit to become involved. It required sort of explanation of D.C. tort law by the court in D.C. And it just put it on this like longer path. While that was happening in 2022, the New York State Legislature passed the Adult Survivors Act, which basically opened or technically gave like a look back window for people who had been assaulted a long time ago and for whose the statute of limitations had run on their claims. Eugene was actually a big part in getting that law passed. The law passed in 2022. It became effective at the end of that year and Thanksgiving of that year. And so Eugene made very clear that her plan was, that our plan was to sue him for the actual assault as soon as the law came into effect. Now, it just so happened that about a month before the window actually opened and the law came into effect, Robbie and I and the rest of the team were heading down to Mar-a-Lago to depose Trump. Robbie's going to take his deposition in the first case, Carol won. And right before the deposition happened, Trump posted a bunch of things on Truth Social in which he once again made the same types of defamatory statements about Eugene. And so uh, on Thanksgiving Day or the day after Thanksgiving, when the ASA took effect, we filed a lawsuit, another lawsuit in which Eugene sued Trump for both the actual assault, because she now could, and for the defamatory statements that he made in October of 2022. That case was moved very quickly. And because a lot of the discovery from the first case sort of could be used in the second case, and because a lot of the issues that were going to be litigated in the second case had already been litigated in the first case, and I think most importantly, because Trump was not president when he assaulted Eugene back in 1986 or when he defamed her in October 2022, it was able to go to trial very quickly. That happened in April, the end of April, beginning of May of last year, and that was the first verdict against Trump. So I hope that was somewhat clear. Yes, that was super clear. So that's why the verdict in Carol 2 came first, mainly because it wasn't encumbered by all of these issues relating to immunity and what have you. And if you were to contrast them, because both of those cases went to jury trials, what would you say were some of the big differences? They were both before Judge Kaplan. They both involved the same parties, but they felt very different, at least to me as an outside observer. I do know one difference is Trump had different counsel, right? He had different lawyers. And I think the other big difference is in the first trial, the main issue that was litigated was whether the assault actually happened. And so there was a lot of testimony from Eugene about the assault itself. And then there was testimony from her two friends who she told about the assault back right after it happened, the day and day after it happened, and also testimony from two other women not related to Eugene, not friends with Eugene, who Trump had separately also assaulted. And Judge Kaplan allowed their testimony because it came in under a rule of evidence that permits sort of evidence of other similar sexual assaults in a sexual assault case. So in that trial, the issue really was whether the assault had happened. The jury found that it did. There was also the issue of whether Trump had defamed her in October of 2022 when he denied it. And the jury, of course, found that he had done that as well. But the big issue at that case was whether the assault had happened. In the second trial, Judge Kaplan found that because of this legal principle called collateral estoppel, we were not going to relitigate whether the assault itself had actually happened. 
that had already been litigated. The same parties were involved. A jury had already decided that it did. And so there was no reason to sort of reopen that and relitigate it. And so he actually instructed the jury and instructed the parties that they were to find that they had to accept that the assault happened, that he instructed the parties that we were not to ask questions or litigate or make arguments suggesting really anything about the assault other than that it happened. And so that was a huge difference in the second trial. The second trial was really focused on whether Trump's statements in June 2019 caused E. Jean harm, how much harm they caused, and how much money he should have to pay her, both for the harm, which is called compensatory damages, and for as punishment and to prevent him from continuing to defame her, and that's called punitive damages. The other big difference, in addition to different counsel, is that Trump showed up to the second trial, and he didn't come to the first one. So that caused a whole bunch of new issues a couple of weeks ago that we hadn't dealt with last year. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. It's kind of interesting that the second trial turned out to be in some ways a bit more of a, uh, and don't get me wrong, I think Judge Kaplan ran both of them very well, but it turned out to be a little bit more of a spectacle because I guess wherever Trump goes, there's a spectacle. But the first case was what actually litigated the issue of sexual assault. So you would think that would actually be more of the main event. But in some ways, the second trial turned out to be a much bigger deal. And maybe that was because Trump testified, although very briefly, I guess. I think that it was in large part because Trump came, just like implicated so many different issues. One was just security, like getting into and out of the courthouse, the number of press who were there every day. The other was just controlling him and controlling his lawyers. I think I've talked a little bit before about how I noticed that his lawyers behaved differently when he was there. He didn't come the whole time. He was there for jury selection. He didn't stay for openings. He was there when Eugene testified. He obviously was there when he testified. And so there were moments when he was not in the courtroom. And I think I would say that his lawyers behaved more like lawyers. They were more willing to like follow the rules of evidence, listen to Judge Kaplan's instructions, talk to us in a collaborative way that like in every case, anyone who has litigated a case or gone to trial knows like there has to be some discussion and some collaboration between the two sides. Otherwise, you're just going to waste the judge's time, waste the jury's time by fighting about everything. It's very clear that Trump's instructions to his lawyers are fight everything, say everything, do everything that you can to like show everyone that this is a witch hunt. And so I think the lawyers behaved differently when he wasn't there. And of course, like Trump himself just doesn't follow the rules. The first day, during jury selection, he was talking loudly and shaking his head and walking in and out of the courtroom and really obviously trying to perform both for the press who was there and for the jurors who he thought, I think, may be like sort of sympathetic to that kind of behavior. And that continued throughout the trial. 
Well, it's interesting. I think one of the most memorable moments, or at least one of the more widely reported moments, was when he stormed out during Robbie's closing statement. Are there other moments that stand out for you from the trial besides something dramatic like that? I feel like it's going to take me years to think. <laughs> There's so many moments that stood out, but it's really interesting because Eugene was actually saying recently that so many people have asked her, what did it feel like for you to sit there and tell your story while he was listening and look at him? Did you look at him? Did you make eye contact? And at one point she said in a way that only Eugene can, the right question is what did it feel like for him to have to sit there and listen to me? And she said that and like, I was like, yeah, no, how have I not thought about it that way before, right? Like, of course, her experience and what it felt like for her is hugely important. Everyone wants to know. But he also had to sit there in a courtroom where he wasn't surrounded by TV cameras, where he wasn't at a rally full of supporters, and listen to a woman who the jury had previously believed talk about how he had hurt her. And that, like, when you think about that, it's a big deal, I think. It's a big deal in any sexual assault case for a survivor to be able to tell the story in a protected way of how badly they've been hurt, but especially in this case and with this defendant. And for me personally, so Trump, as you said, Robbie did the closing argument and he stormed out of the courtroom very early on. He just like couldn't, I guess, bear to hear her talking about all the things that he'd done. And her closing was so just perfect. Like the tone and pitch was perfect. She didn't ever get riled up. I don't even think she noticed when he walked out. And then his lawyer got up and sort of took up the temperature a lot, like ratcheted it up. And she was yelling and she was making arguments. It was good. It was skillful, but more as a press conference than I think a legal argument. And then I got to go. And so Trump came back for his lawyer's argument. And then I got to do the rebuttal which a rebuttal is supposed to be just responsive to what defense counsel has said in their summation. So I got to do that. And a lot of the arguments that Trump's lawyer had made, I think were like somewhat offensive when you really like think about what they were. She was essentially saying that Eugene had actually benefited from the fame or notoriety that had come along with her accusing the former president of rape and that she's better off now and she's achieved some sort of status that she didn't have before. And so she should actually basically be thanking Trump and he's the real victim here. And I gotta say, like, it was probably the most rewarding experience of my entire career to get to stand up five feet away from him and just try at least to shoot down those arguments and try to just make him listen to like, you think you are the victim here? You sexually assaulted this woman and then every chance you've gotten over the last four years, one month, three days, whatever, you have defamed her and hurt her. And you have to sit here and listen to this. And you are going to have to hear what the jury thinks of your conduct and your behavior. And he just sat there. And so for me personally, that was quite a moment. Were you nervous? Honestly, the adrenaline must have been pumping, et cetera. And your client was right there and you wanted to do a great job for her. But you must have been somewhat nervous. I mean, the former president, one of the most powerful people still in the world today, for better or worse, he's sitting right there. Were you nervous? There were definitely times at the trial when I was nervous. One of the things, and Eugene has said this in some of the interviews that she's done, it's really true. When 
Donald Trump is stripped of the sort of fanfare that surrounds him. And he's sitting in the back of a courtroom, sort of brooding and like shaking his head. He does not seem like the most powerful man in the world. He seems like a regular guy. And in some instances, he seems like a petulant toddler who's like not getting what he wants and having a fit. And so by the time I spoke at the very end of trial, and so by that time, we had spent many days sitting in a courtroom with him. And it just felt like a regular trial. And it felt like, you're right, there was so much adrenaline. And I was very fired up. I think we all were after his lawyer's closing statement. And so I was sort of like, get me out there. Like, I can't wait to do this. (laughs) And so I'm sure there were nerves. Like, I don't want to suggest that I wasn't nervous at different times during this trial. But that was more just like a, I can't wait to do this. This is just going to be like really satisfying. Well, it's funny thinking about your earlier comment about how, oh gosh, like, will I ever have an experience or a job like this one? I think that moment will be hard to top for a while. (laughs) But speaking of nerves, you tried the case before Judge Kaplan, for whom you clerked. Was that nerve-wracking? Was that weird? So it was actually not the first time I've tried a case. I had a case when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office trial before Judge Kaplan. I think I was definitely nervous. And I think that's not so much because I clerked for him, but just because I know, having been before him, and I guess also clerking for him, I know how he runs a courtroom. And I know how he expects lawyers to perform. And I think anyone who's been before Judge Kaplan or sat in a courtroom with Judge Kaplan knows you better be prepared and you better know the evidence and you better like be willing to sort of fight for your position, but also back off when you've lost your position. And so I was nervous in that way. Like, as you said, he controls the courtroom probably as well as any judge around. And he's a demanding judge who has high expectations for everyone who appears before him. And so like, I knew that about him and that definitely made me somewhat nervous. That's totally understandable. And I know that Alina Haba and her co-counsel had some issues with Judge Kaplan and getting things into evidence, for example, because he doesn't suffer fools gladly. But what happens next in the case? So the very next thing that will happen is that he'll file post-trial motions. Oh, okay. He has about a month from the entry of judgment, which was last week, to do that. And I expect that he's going to make the same sorts of arguments that they made at trial. I think probably, and those arguments will then be sort of before the appellate court, assuming that Judge Kaplan rejects them. One will, I think, relate to this concept that I talked about earlier about whether he was immune from suit because he was president at the time he made the statements. Judge Kaplan in the Second Circuit found that he had actually waived that defense by not asserting it in his answer to the complaint. And in fact, he didn't assert it for a couple of years while actively litigating the case. I expect that whether a president can even waive immunity and then whether he did so will be issues on appeal. And then the others will probably be just the standard sort of evidentiary type rulings that I'm sure that they took issue with. They did take issue, they objected at trial. I think that we are on very good ground with all of those arguments. One thing about Judge Kaplan is that he understands how to make and protect a record. And so where he ruled something out of evidence, which he did to both sides at this trial repeatedly, he made clear why he was doing that. And district court judges have a pretty high degree of discretion in making those determinations as long as they explain why they're doing it. And so I expect he excluded one of Trump's experts from testifying. And I expect that'll be an issue. There'll probably be others 
that they'll raise that are the more sort of standard type evidentiary issues that you see on appeal. There is a whole body of law about punitive damages and the limits on punitive damages and the ratio of compensatory to punitive damages. 80-something million dollars, which is the total of both the compensatory and the punitives, is a lot of money. Do you expect that to possibly be reduced on appeal? It's possible, but I don't expect it to be. The law says that as long as the punitive damages are within 10 times the compensatory damages, they're okay from a legal perspective. And here, the compensatory damages were about 17 million and the punitive were about 80, 83. And so, wait, no, sorry, 65, 65, sorry, 83 was the total. So we're well within that range. And I think when you're thinking about punitive damages, the types of things that the jury is instructed to consider are one, the defendant's wealth. And we were able to put in Trump's own testimony from the New York AG suit in which he talked about how he's worth billions of dollars. He said that in many, many different ways. And I think the jury just knows that Donald Trump is a rich man. And also, one of the key questions that the jury was told to consider when it came to punitive damages is how much money will it take to get Donald Trump to stop defaming Eugene, right? There had been a jury verdict against him a year ago. The jury didn't know how much, but they knew that there was a jury verdict against him and that literally the day after that verdict, he went on CNN and kept defaming her. And he's done it like a hundred times in the last year, including in the weeks leading up to trial, including during trial, he would leave court and post on Truth Social or give press conferences where he would say the same defamatory things about Eugene. And the next day we would put them into evidence. And so I think that there's a very strong record that the jury was aware of and considered his own conduct in the days leading up to trial. And even in the courtroom, the way that he just like refused to follow the rules when they were considering like how much money is it going to take to get him to stop? And this is not part of the appellate record, but like, it's interesting that he has so far stopped. (laughs) Yes, I was about to ask about that because I did notice that in the days and weeks afterwards, he did. And I was curious about the update because it's sometimes hard to keep track of all his pronouncements, but it does seem that he's quieted down. Kind of more broadly, the Trump legal landscape You're a civil litigator in the cases against him, but you're also a former criminal prosecutor. Do you have any thoughts, just big picture, on all the cases he's facing? It's interesting that the civil cases have moved so much more quickly than the criminal cases. And you talked in your summation about just holding him to justice. And if we want him held to account, it seems the civil legal system or the civil side of things is doing a a better job of that. And it's also the case, now granted, with a criminal case, he also has Fifth Amendment privilege. But, you know, those are the cases where he's testified, both in the E. Jean Carroll case and and also in the the New York State AG's case. He, He clearly cares about the civil cases. They involve money, which he loves very much. So I guess civil and criminal cases of Donald J. Trump discuss. (laughs) So it is certainly true that the second E. Jean case moved much more quickly than I think any of the civil cases and certainly the criminal ones. The first one, as we talked about at the beginning, has taken a while. That was like four years of litigation. I think that And one of the reasons, as you mentioned, that the criminal cases sometimes take a little bit longer is that criminal defendants just have more rights. And in some of those cases where there's like classified discovery or government agencies involvement, it just takes longer to get access to discovery and to litigate all of the very complex issues that come with those sorts of considerations. 
I do think that it is quite notable that Trump showed up and testified at the two trials where there was what he would consider to be a lot of money on the line. The fact that he did not show up for the first E. Jean trial where the issue was whether he raped E. Jean, was whether he sexually assaulted E. Jean, but not as much about like how much he should have to pay for it. He didn't bother to come. And that could be because he had different and I think more experienced counsel at that case, at that trial. But I also think it's because he cares so much about money. (laughs) He just cares so much about money. And he had, I think he thought more to lose here. I personally think that him showing up actually increased the amount that he ended up losing. But I think that there was a part of him that, you know, he sort of suspected that he was going to lose big in the New York AG case and perhaps thought like, I'm going to go to this one and I'm going to try to convince them that this is a fraud and a witch hunt and I don't want to keep losing money. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. We definitely know a lot about his motivations. But now stepping back from this, you do have other cases and clients, although it's probably hard to find leftover oxygen in the room. But what's next for you, Sean? What's the next major matter on the horizon? Do you have any other trials coming up? What's taking up your time right now? I have a trial, a trial actually coming up, not for a few months, but in Florida, where we are representing two women who were assaulted by the same man who is a former boyfriend of each of them at different times and sort of a powerful man in in his community who victimizes women. And so I have that trial. Actually, it's not till next summer, but that's what that's taking up a lot of time now just as we're moving through depositions and discovery and pretrial litigation. What's the balance of your caseload between civil and criminal work? A lot of former AUSAs seem to heavily focus on criminal, but it sounds like your civil docket is actually maybe larger right now. Yeah, I'd say it's probably a little bit more white collar. It's probably like 75% white collar. But I have been very fortunate to get in. Robbie and Julie Fink, another one of our partners, our, our managed partner, have brought me into doing some of the affirmative plaintiff side, especially Me Too cases, where we represent survivors of usually sexual assault by men. And obviously the E. Jean cases went to trial and this one I think is going to go to trial too. And so I feel very fortunate that I'm able to do both of those because I very much enjoy and care deeply about the white collar criminal defense side. But I also feel like I find this practice to be like really inspiring. And I feel a little bit more like a prosecutor Hmm, (laughs) when I'm working in these cases because this is more about how are we building a case and putting together evidence and preparing our witnesses to try to prove that someone did something as opposed Mm -hmm. to proving that someone didn't do something. Sure, no, holding people to account. And I think that is definitely a big part of the attraction of KHF as well. So now let's just turn to my speed round. These are four questions that are the same questions I ask all of my guests. And my first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system. I think the one thing that I don't like about the law, and I'm not sure if there's a way to fix it, is that the barrier to entry for people who are trying to vindicate rights is very high. I mean, it's costly to bring a lawsuit. You have to be able to afford a lawyer and the various costs associated with filing a lawsuit. It also means, though, like it takes up a lot of your life. And especially in these sexual assault type cases, It's enormously invasive of your privacy. The way that the law works is that if 
someone accuses another person of a sexual assault or a similar type of crime, they likely will be asked about their own sort of sexual history and whether they've accused anyone else and what they've done and how they've behaved in the time since the sexual assault. I understand why. I understand why it's important for someone defending a case like that to be able to explore those areas. But it's really hard, I think, as someone who has survived an episode of sexual assault or something like that, and frankly, as the person trying to help them think through their options, to have to weigh those risks and to, in some cases, make the decision that it's not worth it, that like, I can't expose that part of my life or subject my family or loved ones to this. And that may mean never actually like holding this person to account, which is a totally understandable and in some ways practical decision. But that's a really hard thing for, I think, people to accept when they're thinking about the justice system and for me as a lawyer to understand how to navigate. Absolutely. Absolutely. On the one hand, people are entitled to due process, of course, but there are also costs associated with coming forward. And so I think that's why a lot of people really admire Eugene for speaking out, even though it's been at a lot of personal cost to herself. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I would run a brewery in Brooklyn. (laughs) Well, hey, who knows? You could have a side hustle. You partners are are well paid. Maybe you should look into that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good, good. It's always good to have a retirement idea. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? I try to get a good amount of sleep. I mean, I don't always achieve this, but I try to get between like seven and eight hours. My friends make fun of me because I try to go to bed pretty early, including like leaving dinners and parties so that I can be in bed. And then I wake up every morning to do some exercise and sleep. I love sleeping and it's important to me. So I try to get as much as I can. That's great. The reason I ask this question, honestly, is because I am something of a sleep evangelist too. And I'm, I've always been heartened by the number of really successful lawyers and judges I've talked to who, who actually do get a good amount of sleep. So my last question, besides, I guess, you've already given some advice in terms of make sure you get enough sleep. But my last question is, any final words of wisdom, career advice, life advice for my listeners? We've kind of touched on this already, but I think one thing that I constantly try to tell myself and I would tell others as they're thinking about their legal career is that Most of the time, your clients or the people who, the non-lawyers who you're going to be interacting with in your cases and in your work are not going to want to be part of what you're doing. Like, this is your job, but it's not their job. Somebody who's been sued or who is bringing a lawsuit or who's been charged with a crime or who's a witness to a crime, they don't want to be talking to a lawyer. Like, when your name shows up on their phone, they're like, oh, seriously? And so just being mindful of that, that like when I pick up the phone to call a client and I'm in the middle of my workday and I'm like going through my to-do list, like this is not their to-do list work experience. It is like an incredibly disruptive and in some cases scary and painful part of their life. And so just reminding myself of that, I think is very important. That's a great point. And I think it will help my listeners be better lawyers because a big part of being a lawyer is being able to serve your client and help your clients. So again, thank you so much, Sean, for joining me. I really appreciate your time and your insight and congratulations again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much to Sean for joining me and congratulations to her on a landmark victory. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextfirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. 
to explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, please email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, March 6th. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>